Good morning. It's good to uh, see you this morning. I invite you, if you would, to uh, open your Bibles to the book of Romans. Uh, we are going to spend um, some significant amount of our life together over the next while in this book. And so um, uh, we're going to begin just with the first uh, six words today. Six words from the book of Romans. And um, we won't necessarily go six words at a time through the whole book of Romans, if you're worried about that. Um, One of our elders in the prayer time this morning um, suggested that Romans, uh, you know, in those sorts of doses could be sort of like the manna in the wilderness, right? That initially it sounds good and interesting, but then, uh, you know, you're just choking on it, right? Another, you know, another week of Romans as you're uh, treating your uh, 4th of July sunburn and everything else. So Romans chapter 1, just a handful of words. As you uh, arrive at those words, uh, let me ask you if you would to join me in prayer. So Holy God, we thank you that you are here with us in this place. Thank you that you are our God. Thank you that you're a speaking God. Thank you that you're a creative God. Thank you that when you speak, you're creating in us new life and new hopes and new possibilities for healing and restoration and forgiveness and mission. Lord, help us to be open, completely open to you today. Help us to listen to you, for you, in all that happens around us. In this We pray in your name. Amen. So as we uh, get into the book of Romans, uh, we will talk more uh, about some of the important themes and the background and the experiences in Rome uh, that are surrounding the writing of this letter. Uh, But what we want to do for this week and next week is uh, think about a couple of Uh, tools that we bring into any text, uh, especially a text of Scripture, a couple of tools for our work together uh, that will help us to be faithful uh, with the text. And um, this uh, first verse will illustrate for us uh, how this tool, uh, this perspective, this sort of um, interpretive resource Uh, is useful to us as we get into uh, a a letter in the Bible. So this is what it says. This letter um, is from Paul, Jesus Christ's slave. This is a letter from Paul, who is Jesus Christ's slave. So we're going to sit with that. We'll come back to that in just a few minutes. A number of years ago, uh, a really well-known theologian named Stanley Hauervas uh, wrote a book that was called Unleashing the Scriptures. And uh, one of the more startling claims that he made in the book um, uh, is that what we should do is take the Bible away from people. And so let me just read you his words. This is what he says. Most North American Christians assume that they have a right if not an obligation, to read the Bible. And Hauerwas says, I challenge that assumption. And he says this, 
no task is more important for the church than to take the Bible out of the hands of individual Christians in North America. Well, it's fairly provocative, and that's Howard Voss for you, right? A fairly provocative statement. Uh, but he's making a point. He's making a serious point, and he's saying Scripture is dangerous. Scripture is like a sword. Uh, the Bible itself refers to itself as being sharper than a two-edged sword. Scripture is a dangerous weapon. And what Harvas is arguing in his book is that if we don't know how to use the Scripture, we're going to hurt ourselves with it. And more importantly, we're going to hurt other people with it. We're going to wound people with the Scriptures. If you wouldn't give a set of sharpened knives uh, to a five-year-old to play with, why in the world would you give them the Bible? Uh, it doesn't take a, a Duke professor like Harvas to tell us that the Bible is dangerously divisive. It's a dangerous text. Uh, look at the way, even just in our day, that the Bible has come to be sort of a battleground for some of the most controversial issues and conversations in our world. Uh, whether you're talking about something like creation care and climate change or a global refugee crisis or how to treat a political enemy or clean water or the Second Amendment or human sexuality, whatever the debate is, that you find yourself in, the debate can become fierce, polarized, and at least for Christians who also find themselves divided on many of these debates, the Bible is weaponized, and verses are lobbed back and forth like hand grenades. And that isn't even to mention the strictly sort of intramural contests that we have. Think about things like baptism. Communion, women in office, church governance, worship practices. Any one of those could occupy our shepherding elders for a year. All of them can become points of contention in Christian debate, places of division among our churches. Say, well, is that really true? And the evidence is just witness the sheer number of Christian denominations in our country alone, divided and created, in many cases, around the different uses of the same text. And all of this cutting, and all of this weaponizing and separating and wounding, Hauervas comes along and he says, enough! It's enough! Take the knives away from the children. Well, I wonder if there maybe isn't a better, different alternative. Perhaps the Bible isn't the problem per se. Maybe we are the problem. Uh, in other words, if you were to take the Bible away from Christians in North America, we would just find some other ammunition to fight with. The failure isn't a failure of Scripture. It is, as another theologian, uh, the 
eminently brilliant and prolific Old Testament scholar named Walter Brueggemann, one of my favorite writers. Walter Brueggemann uh, might describe the failure more succinctly as a failure of imagination. Uh, in this groundbreaking work um, of Brueggemann's, the prophetic imagination, he lifts up the role of imagination for anybody who professes to use and engage God's word. Imagination. That word might surprise you a little bit. You might be thinking imagination, that sounds like imaginary. And imaginary means not true. And talking about the Bible in those terms makes me nervous. Don't like that. I'd like to suggest, though, that the word imagination, when it comes to entering into Scripture, points to something else. It's an absolutely essential characteristic for us if we're going to enter into a text, if we're going to be people who use the word as a source of light and grace and healing instead of as a sword of division and death. Imagination isn't mostly about truth or fiction. I agree with one writer who put it this way. Imagination actually has very little to do with truth or fiction. It's more accurately a description of how we experience truth or fiction than of the facts themselves. In other words, do we experience it vividly and personally, or do we experience it from a cold, lifeless distance? So theologian and preacher Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way. What do we mean by imagination? Our dictionaries give us a series of definitions. Common to all of them seems to be the ability to think outside of oneself. Stop and think about that. The ability to think outside of oneself. To be able to see or conceive of the same thing in a different way. In some definitions, the ideas uh, of the ability to contrive, exercising resourcefulness, the mind's creative power, are among the nuanced meanings of the word, says Ferguson. Imagination in preaching or in Bible study, means being able to understand the truth well enough to translate or transpose it into another kind of language or musical key in order to present the same truth in a different way that enables others to see it, to understand its significance, to feel its power, to do so in such a way that gets under our skin and breaks through barriers and grips our mind and our will and our affections so that they not only understand the word, but feel their truth and power. That's what we mean by imagination. I know some of us will still be skeptical and maybe even a little bit confused about the idea of imagination as a tool for interpreting scripture. If you ever had an imaginary friend when you were young, uh, you knew then that you were just sort of making things up. When we talk about imagination in Scripture, we are not talking about just making things up. Isn't it more important for us to have doctrines to guide our approach to Scripture? Isn't it more important that we have the great truth of Scripture to guide us rather than our imagination? So it's true that beliefs are important. 
the question that we're asking is how do beliefs come to be and how do beliefs work in us? Our beliefs are made up of words. And our words themselves rest on images. And those images are connected to our stories. So let me just give you an example. Let me just say to you, last Christmas. What was last Christmas like for you? Everybody in the room right now is uh, responding to that with a belief. The belief is important. Your belief is going to be either it was a wonderful Christmas, it was a great holiday, or it was stressful, or it was disappointing, or it was filled with grief. You'll have some belief about last Christmas. And then as you consider that belief, if you dig down just a little bit beneath the words that you've used to describe last Christmas, you'll find some very specific pictures, some images connected to those beliefs. Uh, Maybe you'll uh, envision sitting around a cozy family room with a fire uh, sort of crackling away in the corner, and you can see the faces of loved ones and friends and family members, and you can hear their, their laughter in your ears. Maybe you envision a specific table that's set with a traditional holiday meal, or maybe when you think of Christmas, uh, and, and you know, uh, this would be the one that I would vote for, you think of coming here to a Christmas Eve candlelight service, and, and you can imagine uh, the, the ring of candlelight around the sanctuary and the, and the beauty of a choir and the resonance of that ancient story. Maybe you hear the sounds of children laughing as they open their presents, or you smell the, 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 the odors of a roast or tamales coming out of the kitchen, or fresh-baked bread. Maybe you see an empty chair. All together, those images tell the story of your Christmas. They help you feel the significance of your Christmas. Images tell our stories Stories form our beliefs. And that's how the Bible works, too. You know what the theological beginning of the Bible is? If you say, where does the Bible begin? Many people think the Bible begins in the book of Genesis with the creation story. But the creation story isn't the theological beginning of the Bible. The theological beginning of the Bible is the story of Moses, the book of Exodus. Because it's ultimately Moses who tells us the creation story through a specific set of images. Moses, at the very beginning of his story, has a pivotal moment. And he encounters the living God. And he's told that the God that we serve is a God that is so other than, so far beyond, so different from you and from me that he can't even be described with a name. You can't pronounce the name of God. And instead of giving a name, God gives to Moses an image of a fire that doesn't consume. It's an impossibility, an impossible image that's describing an indescribable God. 
fire that doesn't consume. Uh, when Hebrew parents, Jewish parents, wanted to teach their children and their grandchildren about God, when they wanted to teach theology, according to Exodus 12, the heart of what they were supposed to do is to throw a party. They were supposed to gather around a, a table and tell stories, and those stories would be filled with images, graphic images, images of a slaughtered lamb and a blood-smeared doorpost. And centrally, unleavened bread, flat bread. Unleavened bread, a symbol, an image of haste, rushing, escaping, freedom. The Bible gives us images, and the images tell a story, and the story forms our belief. This opening set of words in Romans, Romans 6, uh, six words in, in Romans, invites us to consider uh, another powerful image. We need to let it show us its story. Paul a slave. What's it like to be a slave? Have you been a slave? Do you know anybody who's been a slave? What's it like to own a slave? What's it like to have no freedom? What's it like to have no identity? What's it like to, to have been free? and then to be transitioned into slavery. What is that like? And what we're going to say as we enter into Romans is that in order to understand Paul and to connect with the letter, we need to let that image work on us. We need to understand what it means to enter into the story that that image gives to us and walk around the pages of Romans as if we were a slave. So right from the beginning, uh, we need to adjust our thinking about Romans. Romans isn't mostly a scholarly exploration of doctrine, a tidy Romans road to individual salvation. It can't be. Not with this image of slavery standing right there at its front door. Speaking of doors, uh, here's another one. The door is an image, right? A symbol. And uh, this is a door that will help us to think about some of the images and symbols in the book of Romans. Uh, but this door also can help us to think about something else that we need to know about images. Uh, images are what give us our stories, and our stories are what give us our beliefs. But just like with this door, the image means something different depending on where you're standing. If I'm on the inside of the door, the door is a symbol of something like security, safety, belonging, 
home, comfort. Sometimes on a snowy Michigan day, I like to stand and look out the window next to my door and see a blizzard happening outside. And I'm thankful for my door. But if you're on the other side of the door, the symbol can mean something different. How many of you have ever locked yourself out of your house? Anybody ever done that? Lock yourself out of your house, right? If you've locked yourself out of your house, you're on this side of the door, and suddenly the symbol, the image, means something different to you. It isn't something that you're glad for. It's something that becomes an obstacle, an unwanted barrier. Right? The door now isn't something that's keeping you in and safe and cozy, but the door now is keeping you out. How many of you have ever had the experience of being kicked out of the place that you live and having the locks changed on you? The lock no longer works for your key. The image is an image of loss. If you've ever been homeless, if you've ever walked down our main street, or down Eastman, or down Saginaw, and seeing the doors on the homes, homes that you don't have. The door is a symbol or an image of an impossible longing, an impossible dream. Depending on where you stand, the meaning of the image changes. Jesus says this. Jesus is a master at taking the images and the stories of his youth and standing with them a little bit differently. He sits down with his disciples at their last meal together, the Last Supper, and he takes the same images, the images that they've all been hearing since their own childhood. He picks up that unleavened bread, the image of the Exodus, The same image, but he stands a little bit differently. He stands in a different position. He says, now, this is my body. And it points to a different kind of exodus, a different kind of freedom, a different kind of nourishment. He gives the image a new resonance for a new people of God. Do you know that at the very center of your faith there stands an image? The cross itself is an image. It's a powerful, evocative image of Rome, of death, of execution. It's a symbol beyond words that would have struck fear into the hearts of any who beheld it. It's a symbol that would have marked you as shameful, as an outsider, as excluded. Being placed on that symbol was a torment reserved only for those who were not Roman. But again, Jesus reinvents the symbol. He goes to the other side of the door and he looks at the the cross from a different perspective. And he says, 
This is a symbol of radical inclusion. This is a symbol of life now. He doesn't just reimagine the image. He transposes it to its its opposite. He reverses it, and it becomes an image of belonging. From the other side of the door, the, the cross looks different. From the other side of the resurrection, the cross changes its meaning. Here's my point. We all stand somewhere in relationship to the door. There's no such thing as looking at the images of this story from nowhere. Put another way, as one philosopher says, there is no adjective-free theology. It's not as if there are some people out there who do liberation theology if you care about social justice, or black theology if you're a person of color, or womanist theology, or feminist theology. There are people who do those sorts of hobby theologies, but I just do pure theology. No one does theology. No one reads the Bible. No one looks at the door without standing somewhere. We all have an adjective. We all come with our assumptions, with our experiences, with our questions, with our hopes, and with our dreams. We all do theology. We all read the Bible from where we stand in our own stories. And Paul is inviting us right at the front door to engage a prophetic imagination and stand as best we can in the story of another. Paul, a slave. What would Romans mean to me if I was a slave in the first century? If I was sitting down in the kitchen areas of a first century Roman household and heard the letter of Romans read to me. If the Roman Empire had wiped out my native culture and conquered my town and put me into servitude, how would I experience Paul, who seems to welcome his own slavery, even be proud of it? Or in Romans 8, another image, Paul describes a groaning creation. A groaning creation. What does it mean for us to stand in the story of a creation that groans? And this powerful image of a woman in labor. How do we enter the story of that picture? In chapter 14, we encounter the images of food and drink. Uh, powerful images in any culture. They engage all of our senses. What is the story behind Paul's concern over food and drink? And, and what kind of a feast is this? What does it smell like? What does it mean for those who are welcome to sit at the table? And what does it mean to those who are not? Images 
make our stories, and our stories form our beliefs. The images change their meaning based on where we stand. And here's what I want to say. We're going to see Paul do this all over the place in Romans. In other words, a faithful reading of Romans or any book in the Bible will require us to think about where we stand and to engage our imagination to create and explore new possibilities of standing. The Bible itself does this. This is how Scripture treats Scripture. This is how Paul reads Scripture. It is a faithful, it is the faithful way to engage the pictures and the images and the stories of the Bible. So as we study Romans, here's my goal. Here's my overarching goal. It's one that we'll return to over and over and over again. It is that God will heal our imaginations. It's the prayer from another of Paul's letters. In Ephesians, Paul says, he prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having had the eyes of your heart enlightened. Your eyes don't literally have, your heart doesn't literally have eyes. This is an image. It's an image of creativity, of insight that he says can change how we experience God and how others experience us. My prayer is that our imaginations would be healed and that therefore the most life-giving, grace-filled life experience of Scripture would be opened up to us. As Paul continues, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than anything we can ask or think this will, this will not be limited by what we can think. My prayer is, as we go through Romans, that our imaginations will be healed so that we can experience the grace-filled, love-soaked experience of Scripture for us and therefore become a people of healing and hope and wholeness in a world that is far too divided by the sword. Would you pray with me, please? Jesus, thank you for your slave, Paul. Help us to understand what that means. Help our story to be shaped by the story of a slave in whose name we pray.